Good afternoon, and welcome to Citizen K, a weekly current affairs program featuring in-depth interviews and perspectives. I'm Kareem Mosna. Host of the next chapter on CBC Radio 1, Sheila Rogers was in Kingston last Friday for the National Campus and Community Radio Association's Gala and Awards Night. She got her start in broadcasting right here at CFRC, and she shares lots of stories and insights coming up. A new exhibition at the Tet Center celebrates education in Nigeria and partnerships. The Muno Taro exhibit, which translated means coming together, is a collaboration between nonprofit organizations, One Million Teachers, Five Calories Arts Education Initiative, and Girl Rising. The nonprofits work to enhance access to education and training for teachers in Nigeria and 14 other countries. Hakim Subair founded One Million Teachers while a student at Queen's University in the Smith School of Business. It was my master's project as well as master's project for two other students who became my very close friends. And we saw an opportunity to do something um, in settings where we felt there was huge issues. So yeah, so One Million Teachers is a baby of Queen's at the Smith School of Business. But beyond that, uh, we got early support from the Faculty of Education. Actually, do you mind if we move a little bit over here? Perfect. Perfect. So that's where this whole... Can you tell me about um, what gave you this spark? What gave you the idea to, to, to begin this initiative? Well, it was very personal for me. Um, before I relocated to Canada, um, we used to own a school, my family. And I was looking for... When we had our daughter, I was looking for a daycare. My wife was looking for a daycare to put our daughter, and she didn't find anything that she, she liked. Oh, that was up to her standard. Uh, so she's a medical doctor, always on call. And that's how the idea came, hey, why don't we just start a daycare? And then the daycare became, hey, we like how your daughter has been taken care of by her friends. They brought their own friends. And then it became, why don't you start a preschool? And then, okay, we don't want our kids to leave here to another elementary school. Why don't they just continue? So there was no plan at all. It just happened from there, and that exposed me to so many challenges uh, when it came to education and uh, just recognizing that teachers were really, really significant in making the difference. And I mean, this has made the difference for children's lives, for their families uh, in Africa. Um, you know, tell, tell me about how the, the education, how the curriculum came about for these children in this project. Okay, so uh, first of all, um, as you know, we are one million teachers. And uh, we felt teachers are most significant for enhancing student learning, so our focus is on teachers. But then you begin to see a lot of holes and gaps in your programming, in your curriculum, in the, even in the design. And you begin to say, hey, how can we look at it from a systems perspective? How do we ensure that we cover all of these loopholes? And that's kind of what led to uh, working with similar organizations that are doing something that is uh, very important to the work that we're doing. And as you know, the SDG, SDG 17, talks about collaboration partnerships. So there is a big role that the Queen's University is playing uh, through the Faculty of Education. So we come in here today is to um, show the world, essentially, uh, the work that we're doing individually and collectively as a group. So the whole essence of Muna Taro means Muna, we, Taro, coming, you know, coming together. So, uh, so this is just the beginning of uh, celebrating these uh, partnerships 
that you know uh, ultimately is to be able to provide um, gender responsive, inclusive, quality education. And you can't talk about gender responsive education without making sure that girls are at the heart of what you're doing. And that connects with the girls rising part of, of all of this, exactly. the, the girl child and how exactly. um, making sure they have access to the opportunities in the world as exactly. well. Exactly. So, and then when we say inclusive, uh, something that I probably didn't emphasize much is the vulnerable communities. Uh, you see NECT uh, being represented here. Um, um, these are orphans, you know, uh, lost their parents due to insurgency and they have been taken care of um, leveraging the One Million Teacher Programming, leveraging Girl Rising Programming. You understand? So, and then we, even when we talk about inclusivity, we're talking about those who are differently enabled, you know, than what you would know, just making sure that we incorporate all of that. The exhibit includes the My Story of Water project, where children explored the importance of water in sustaining life. Hand-painted jerry cans are on display, along with photographs of children engaging in reading, crocheting, and other activities. Subair says the arts-based education develops critical thinking and communication skills. I mean, learning should be fun, and kids, what better way for them to learn than having fun learning? So that's kind of what this seeks to do uh, with, this kid, uh, with these children. They are learning, uh, doing project-based work without even realizing that they are actually learning. So that's the fun part of it. Project-based learning skills and, and all of that to develop communication skills because it involves collaboration and all of that. So uh, essentially making sure that they have, they, they tick all the key boxes when it comes to preparing learners for the 21st century. It's building the whole person, uh, the, heart, the, the academic, but also, as you said, the social as well. Yes, yes exactly. Um, I mean, um, whole person. And I, I, I probably... I uh, didn't even emphasize one of the key aspects of what we do is uh, trauma-informed uh, 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 learning uh, for these kids who are vulnerable, who have gone through significant trauma, uh, ensuring that we embed uh, those uh, uh, tools that enable them to deal with the trauma. CEO of Children's Northeast Trust, Dr. Miriam Masha, says we focus on children from horrible backgrounds. Witness their parents and their families murdered, they've been out of school, displaced, they're despondent. Um, many of them hadn't even been to school prior, so they were already in, they were already vulnerable and disadvantaged before the conflict in the Northeast by Boko Haram actually started. So uh, um, having this um, Boko Haram it, the conf um, conflict, it, it basically just exacerbated things. And um, so we had children who really needed help. And if we didn't do something about it, it's basically a time bomb waiting to happen. So what we were able to do was to, um, to take in some of these children based on you know, some vulnerability indices and to bring them in, those who'd lost like both parents who had no families. And, and there were quite a number of them, about 50,000 in one local government alone. And so we took in uh, a number of them and it's a process, a long process, but it's been effective of rehabilitation, renewing, renewing empowering and nurturing them. And it's beyond just the formal teaching, but it's how do we provide um, psychosocial support, how do we provide the education, how do we begin to essentially disrupt and end the cycle of violence and poverty and illiteracy. And you have children who have got very powerful stories, who today have come from such horrible backgrounds, but today they are coding, they are reading, they are writing, they are they have aspirations, they have hopes and dreams, which money really can't buy. You are listening to Citizen K on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, CFRC.ca and on podcast. Last night, 
the Islamic Society of Kingston held a virtual vigil for the Azal family, as it's been one year since a truck jumped a curb in London, Ontario, killing four members of the family who were out for a Sunday walk. Society member Mona Rahman shares some perspective. Do you feel like, like these kinds of, of, of gatherings, uh, whether virtual or in person, marches, do you feel this is making the difference? I think on an individual level, it's always um, beneficial. It's always a healing approach to gather with others. On the flip side, what it also shows is the amount of support that um, the community has for those, you could say, for the haters. And it's like, you know, you might, you might think that we are others and we are outsiders, but look, you know, the entire community is supporting us. We saw the shooting in Quebec City in 2017. We saw the stabbing um, in the in Etobicoke at the Rexdale Mosque. This particular tragedy, I mean, this particular act of violence, I think it really hit hard. It hit everybody very closely. And you saw the response from across Canada. I mean, Prime Minister. Trudeau was there yesterday at the, the walk in London. And I think it was the shattering of the normalcy in London. Like there was, this was a family who was simply going out for a walk. It's something that all of us do to have somebody who very, very, you know, explicitly targeted this family because they were visibly Muslim was something that I think was a, was a great shock to everybody. And I must say, I lived in London um, about 20 years ago. And um, London is unique in Canada in that it's one of the oldest Muslim communities in the country. So for myself, I always felt very safe because there were so many Muslims around. My parents immigrated here, my friend's grandparents a lot of their grandparents were the ones that were the immigrant generation in London. So I think what it leaves you thinking is, you know, if it happened in London, when people are so established, like how could it happen there? Um, and I think that's one of the things that really shocked me. You know, unfortunately, we, we, we are seeing these, this Islamophobia coming in various forms, uh, verbal abuse, microaggression, and, and some of these outright acts of, of violence. Um, what, what more would you like to see? Uh, you know, I, I know that there is a, a bill uh, at the provincial level going on right now. Um, is there something more that you think we, 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 need to, we need to see maybe from a political stance right now? In general, I think the, the issue of Islamophobia needs to, be, needs to be acted upon directly. A lot of time, I mean, to to um, enact policies that deal with hatred, with bigotry in general. That is something that, you know, we have the Canadian Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms and we have all these things, but for some reason, Islamophobia has always been brushed aside. It's always been sort of, oh, no, 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 not it's not that. It, and there's been a lot of excuses as to why something that is you know, blatantly Islamophobic is not considered to be, oh, well, it's not racism because you're not a race. Um, a friend of mine, actually, I saw her, she wrote an article and she, coined, and she used the phrase faithism. And that's something I think that we really start, need to start identifying and characterizing. And, it's only recently that these horrible tragedies have occurred 
that Islamophobia is being taken seriously. I mean, I think in 2017, the NCCM saw, I can't remember the exact percentage offhand, but it was like about 157% or something increase in acts of Islamophobia based on the previous year. There's a huge, huge jump. Part of it is that people were feeling emboldened based on the political climate to, to act on their hate. Part of it, I think, is also that people are finally starting to report things and, and not brushing it aside. We really need to start calling it what it is, reporting it. And when that happens, then hopefully, as we can see now, people are starting to take it seriously. And hopefully we can make those changes on the political level. You're listening to Citizen K on CFRC. I'm Kareem Mosna. And what an honor and privilege it was to speak with CBC's Sheila Rogers. Sheila, what an absolute pleasure. How does it feel to come back here today? Kareem, you're sitting in my chair. I'm just going to say, I broadcast from this studio many, many times, and uh, it's really nice to see you in it. And I've got to say, coming back, I'm, I'm just sort of feeling like I'm swimming through a flood of nostalgia. A lot of great memories. And, um, you know, thinking about people that I hung out with when I was at CFRC, who I haven't seen for a long, long time, but hoping to get together with them at these alumni, CFRC alumni events, and uh, reminding myself, too, that um, were it not for CFRC, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing or uh, have done for many decades. So feeling really lucky, too. Yeah, when you bring that up, uh, what, what was it about your time here at CFRC that has... Uh, in a way, you know, led you on with, with the career that has gone on for all these all this time. I think it was the freedom that I felt here, the freedom to make mistakes, and I've certainly made many more since I started getting paid for broadcasting. But I could do anything, and if I wasn't an expert in something, I could still try it out. I could be mentored by someone who really knew what they were talking about. I could take on all aspects of the broadcast program. And it was just opportunity, possibility, freedom. And I also have to say that before I came to CFRC, I didn't feel as though I was really fitting into Queens. Uh, when I came here, I met my people. And um, I would say probably uh, extroverted introverts, perhaps, and um, definitely nerds. And I, I felt right at home. And it really made my Queen's experience. It really did. Do you I'm remember? Get, I'm getting misty yeah. eyed. <laughs> Sorry. Do you remember the day you walked in here for the first time? I do. Yes. And I remember walking down the stairs and I had to buzz. And uh, the program director, whose name was Ted Kennedy at the time, said, yes. And I said, hi, I would like to become a classical music announcer. And the door opened and that was sort of it. Um, I, he literally took me by the hand and sat me down in a studio and said, we'll train you. That's where it began training and the test. I remember my test. It was just 
records stopping all of a sudden and you'd have to ad lib and make sure there was still sound going out on the air. Um, basketballs being thrown at the glass. I mean, it was, they do anything to distract you. It was just, I look back on it, nothing like that has ever really happened in my career since. But um, what brought me in was listening to a program legendary at the time called Classics by Request. And I heard somebody reading a record jacket. I had the exact same record jacket. And I said to my roommate, I could do that. And she said, sure, you could. And I said, no, I really could. And I just kept saying it for weeks and weeks until she finally said, if you really think you can do it, go down to CFRC and knock on their door. And I did. Wow. Um, and, you know, we had a comment on our Facebook page, uh, a listener remembering you hosting that classical oh show. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You're kidding. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Not a young listener, perhaps, but <laughs> it was a fun show to do. And I later on, um, I hosted a request program on CBC Radio 2, as it was called. It still is, I guess. And I always loved that because you interacted with the listener. That was really a, a really special part of it. You knew that this wasn't something you were making up. You were actually doing something the listener wanted to hear. So, And often they would tie it to some kind of personal event, sometimes a death, sometimes a birthday. And, um, you know, it, you felt as though you had a relationship in that moment. So it was fun. I understand, uh, in addition to classical, you also explored some other avenues during your time here uh, in broadcasting. At, right at CFRC, yeah. I, um, I guess you could say I was the producer of a program called the Music Department with Dr. Dr. FRC Clark. I almost called him CFRC Clark. <laughs> he was head of the music department at the time. And um, I was a jazz broadcaster. I did some folk programming. Um, I did some after midnight progressive rock programming. And whenever I could, I wanted to interview people. I really enjoyed um, having a conversation on the air. And I guess that's, that's really what it's always been about for me. Because if, if you're not having a conversation the way we are, you're still having a conversation with the listener. And I think uh, it was Peter Zosky, who was the host of Morningside, who told me, you're only broadcasting to one listener at a time. Unless you're in front of a, a lecture hall, it's always second person singular. And that really changed how I approached my positioning in front of the microphone um, from saying you all or mm -hmm. uh, many of you to you, second person singular, so that, that really you're reaching out just to that one person. Because radio is such an intimate medium. You know, you're with people when they're waking up in the morning, when they're in the bathroom, um, the kitchen, the car, you know, it's, uh, you're with them in, in very personal moments. So um, that was a really huge lesson. But it's, I think it is all about conversation. Yeah, you really are connecting with, with people that you might never meet. And to right. think that you're having such developing that with, with somebody, is, is, is that something that you still love about radio today? Yeah, I, I still do. And it's, um, it's still kind of an electric charge to sit in front of a microphone. Um, I know that, uh, you know, 
people can write in very quickly now, right? They can let you know exactly what they're thinking uh, instantaneously. And I like that. Uh, for years, I read letters written to Peter Zosky and, and the program Morningside. And, you know, there was always a bit of a a time warp between, you know, we get the letters, but the program had aired three or four days earlier. And and now, um, you know, you're building a relationship in real time. So yeah, I, I, I like that. It's kind of, it's everything. And I really prefer going live to being recorded for that reason. Oh, absolutely. There's so much that feeling that you get when, when that mic goes live, you know? Oh boy, mm-hmm. you've got it, don't you? you you've really <laughs> felt it, haven't you, Kareem? <laughs> yeah, it's a great feeling. I've got to ask a bit about Peter Zosti as you brought him sure, up. Um, yeah. Would you say he was an important mentor to you? Uh, he absolutely was, yeah. he. I have no idea why he sort of took me under his wing. Um, the first time I interviewed him was about one of his golf tournaments for literacy. And uh, he came in very early in the morning into a studio in Toronto. And I was so nervous. Um, I've, I've said this before, but I felt like Oz was coming to Dorothy. And, and it should have been the other way around. And um, to cover up my nervousness, I was kind of rude to him about his golf game. I had no idea how he played golf, but... I think I sort of tossed off something like, I, I hear you're not exactly a scratch golfer. Um, and uh, he liked it because I think so many people revered him. Uh, and I certainly did, but I didn't want to let him know. And um, two weeks later, he we, we had a good time on the air. You know, there was what he called badinage, which I take as a sort of a a ball going back and forth over the net. And sometimes you're actually trying to hit the person mm. <laughs> with that ball. <laughs> but uh, we had um, a very playful relationship. And the biggest thing he taught me, Kareem, um, was the night before I filled in for him for the first time. I called him up and I'd been hosting for quite a while by this point, but not not ever Morningside. And I said, um, dude, like, what do I do? And he said, just listen. And I said, yeah, and then what? And he said, there is no then what, just listen. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And, and, and he told me later, you know, the CBC, you're very fortunate um, working with producers, and they will craft amazing questions. And they're all really smart people. And a conversation, though, cannot go the way it's written on a paper. Otherwise, you know, you might as well just be doing it for print. So something magic happens, I think, when the microphone goes on. And I think that's what you have to respect. You have to you have to really listen deeply to what the person is saying and craft your questions out of that. It took me a while to trust myself to do that. And... Uh, it's it's a very interesting um, experience when you're you just don't know what's going to happen. It's very exciting, right? You, you can't predict exactly how it's going to go. You always hope for the best. You hope you'll get some kind of epiphany. Um, but uh, it's like all you have is air and the voice, and you're kind of sculpting it as you go, and that hasn't gotten old and I got to listen to 
someone I regard as a master doing that for many years. So I was really lucky. Thank you. And, uh, you know, all the years that you've been with the CBC, the media landscape has, of course, shifted considerably mm-hmm. um, since your time here at CFRC mm-hmm. and through all those years. Um, you know, how do you feel about where we're at now? Um, and, and how do you feel even more specifically about the role of campus and community radio today? I think it's more important than ever. Um, I love the democracy of campus and community radio, of podcasting, um, that it's not just going to be people affiliated, for example, with the Queen's community, that it's wide open to the Kingston community and, and the area. And I think that's really critical. I think as the media landscape changes, and um, we go to sources that fill up a lot of different um, platforms, it's really important to have these unique places that really respect their mandates, their mission, which is to reflect the campus and the community. And I think, you know, all the sort of syndication programs that we have as as regional broadcasting and, and newscasting, for example, starts to shrink, it started to shrink maybe two decades ago at the CBC, it's more important than ever that there are stations like this reflecting what's going on here on the ground. And um, I love the new media landscape. I love the fact that everybody has access to it. And uh, I think that that's really critical. I'm not playing down the role of a national broadcaster. I think that's really important too. And I think it's important that the country is reflected back to itself as well as best as we possibly can. But I think the more local you are, the more it means to people because you're broadcasting where they live and uh, you know where they, they play out their lives. So I think it's, it's really critical. You know, this is why I, I do interviews, right? Because I sort of go, on and on and on, right? <laughs> well, you're sharing so much valuable uh, insight, and it's so appreciated. You're very kind, Kareem. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I've been really lucky, you know. And um, I, I know when I can tell people who've been, we used to call it the disease, and you have it. I know you've you can got tell, it. eh? <laughs> you can tell you love being in front of a microphone. It's fun. It's really, really fun. And sharing information and, and emotion and lives and really what it comes down to is sharing story. So it's, uh, you know, it's such an honor to do this kind of thing. Uh, in addition to your work in broadcasting and journalism, you've also done some advocacy work as well. Um, do you feel that sometimes it can be challenging uh, between being a journalist and also being an advocate and, and work in that field? That's an extremely thoughtful question. And I've wrestled with it a lot. Um, a number of times I've felt I've, I've had to hold back from what my heart is telling me I must do as an advocate or an activist. Um, and to be very honest, I find, I find it getting harder all the time. So um, I'm thinking a lot about what's, what my next chapter is going to be after I finish doing this program. While I have the energy, I, I do want to advocate for a couple of causes that are really important to me. Um, I would really like to see mental health care treated with the same respect and urgency as physical health care. 
And I would really love to see a really solid beginning to a new relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. And, and those are things I really want to work for and work towards. So, yeah, I mean, you've caught me kind of right in the middle of my thinking about that. But it is an issue. And I, I spoke with uh, one of the broadcasters who's here from uh, Nostalgia FM mm -hmm. in Winnipeg, Adam, and I can't remember his last name. But he, he was talking about journalism that is solution oriented. So you're not just reporting on the terrible thing. You're also offering a, a researched solution. And I think I could be very happy in that landscape. But you always have to think about, are you speaking for yourself? Or are you speaking on behalf of the story and the people in the story? So yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting issue for me. And uh, I'm, I'm giving it a lot of thought. And that's all for Citizen K this week. Citizen K was produced with the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Queen's University. CFRC 101.9 FM broadcasts from Kingston, Ontario on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. Thank you for listening. I'm Kareem Mosna. <laughs>